You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Well, good morning. Uh, if you're a visitor, we're glad you're here. If you're always glad, or you're always here, we're glad that too. Uh, did you get your wordle this morning? Well, good, because we're here to get into the wordle of God. Yeah, I got that off Twitter. Got that off Twitter. Been saving that in my sleeve for a few weeks. How's your streak going, though? You doing good? All right. The conversation piece for a different day. Um, uh, one thing, uh, as you probably have seen in media outlets that we possess, the Chile cook-off will not happen after church today. That, of course, is with the safety of individuals in mind. That was a leadership team decision, which was not taken lightly, because as I stated, uh, public health and our participation in that is always a concern as is the, the real substantiated need for community and momentum in community, which we're all desperately grasping for. So have no fear, friends, though. We will put that back on. Um, I will say, in case you're interested, like we had looked at the data, and I think in McLennan County, the health district was like 1,000 new cases, 800, 700. So it was like, all right, we're heading the next direction. We made the decision next day, 2,000 new cases. So um, among other things, be mindful of our healthcare workers. Uh, this is just a, uh, a season with problems that feel legion, and uh, I cannot imagine the exhausting work they're doing, but um, we sure are appreciative, and we want to do our part as a community to not just help them, but to honor their work. And, um, you know, I don't know in the, the calculus of decision-making and leadership uh, judgments how, how effective our decisions to cancel things like that are, but, um, you know, you save one life, that matters for eternity. So that's how we think about those things. All right. Um, a lot of you commented on my vest this morning and offered your condolences. Thank you very much. Uh, it says Packers right there. Um, you would ask why I would wear such a thing on a day like today. Uh, I, by um, a rule, don't wear sports clothing in the pulpit ever, but because it's, it's the thing that makes people mad. If it's not the right team, they'll leave a church over that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, like I'm like the disciple who didn't flee Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm wearing it today with pride. So thank you for, um, for your uh, solidarity. Okay. There's a fun tweet floating around Twitter, and it simply poses a question that's going to turn into an invitation for us, which is this. If there are five things that you could talk about right now for 30 minutes, what would they be? I went ahead and answered this, which I will disclose to you in a minute, but in the, uh, the spirit of, of getting our introverts into an uncomfortable place, I'm going to ask you in the next couple of moments to discuss with your friend next to you, what are five, two, maybe you can come up with two two to three things that you could lecture a group of people for 30 minutes about uh, without prepping, just because you're so enthralled and passionate. So let's take a minute to do that. Talk amongst yourselves. Ethan, what's something you could talk about for 30 minutes without stopping? Okay, what about the world wars? Which one? Anything in particular? Machinery? 
Oh, I love that. All right, buddy. Well, thanks for the answer. Where'd your family go? Well, God bless your family. We're grateful for the places they are. Well, you're holding on the fort by yourself today. Thanks, buddy. Okay, I see uh, conversations dying, and and those that aren't uh, will continue during the sermon anyways, because that's what you guys do, and I get it. Okay, uh, well, now I reveal mine. My five topics I could talk about without qualification for 30 minutes are as the follows. Ecological challenges facing the Great Lakes, the Green Bay Packers, too soon. Uh, Christian music from 1995 to 98. Gold Coast mansions and the Gilded Age architecture. Secondary market for Hallmark ornaments. These are areas I really have given myself to and feel epistemically qualified to, um, to divulge knowledge to you at end. Uh, there is one topic, however, I didn't put on the list that I had a thought about afterwards and I would like to discuss this morning. That is WWF wrestling from 1990 to 94. Uh, it was called the WWF at this point too. I was, I was a fan, big time fan. My, my favorite wrestler was the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, like most kids, I vocationally changed my uh, interest every couple of years. Uh, but for at least three or four of them, I was going to be a professional wrestler. So I started working on that goal very early in my life. Um, you'll note in our side-by-side -side comparisons, I too have armbands accentuating my biceps. Um, the reason for my WWF costume was the, because me and my best friend, Matt Utek, would practice our WWF moves by fighting pillows. We were very good. We would, um, we would jump off our beds, we would do leg drops, we would body slam them. Uh, aside from the obvious athletic ability, our, our acrobatic ability, the theater to which we executed our craft was, was really something to behold. I was committed to the WWF. Shared in a previous sermon that in um, his graciousness, my dad took me and actually Matt, now you have a picture, to a live wrestling event. So I got to witness it in the flesh um, one of my most vivid memories about my love affair with the WWF was that um, I was very insistent that, in fact, all of this wrestling was very real. All of it. Uh, the punching, the kicking, the body slamming, it's all very real. When the earthquake repeatedly did his finishing move and, and jumped and brought his 400 pounds repeatedly down on Hulk Hogan's chest, and Hulk Hogan was carried off on a stretcher, and there was questions about his broken ribs and his cardiovascular condition, and there was rumors of retirement, this Christian prayed fervently and righteously that he would return, and he did. Because in my mind, it was all real. Now, my second grade teacher, Mr. Mickelson, disagreed with me. We argued extensively about the the realness of the WWF. I would bring him pictures, clips from magazines of wrestlers bleeding, and like an evangelical apologist, I would slap those down on his desk and say, then how do you explain that? <laughs> Mr. Mickelson had the patience of Job, and he would listen patiently, deconstruct every argument I brought to him, and then uh, establish beyond reasonable doubt that in fact wrestling was fake, and I would counter then that it was real. Eventually, though, I lost interest in this debate. And in wrestling, in 1992, the Chicago Bulls won their first NBA championship, then two more. My affections changed. The Hulk Hogan posters came down. The Michael Jordan posters went up. I changed my vocational direction from pro wrestler to pro basketball. And then I got to middle school, and by the time this rolled around, all of that was kind of a distant memory. I gave up my wrestling action figures, gave them to little Matt Redepenning. Somewhere along the way, 
I stopped believing that wrestling was real. Uh, but really, that epiphany just came with age and apathy. One day I just realized, oh yeah, all of that is fake. Uh, this reminds me of an experience I had at Disney World. We had Roy and Lily at the time. They were just two and three. I approached a, a vendor. We had just seen a stage production of Beauty and the Beast. And I don't know if I had a question or I wanted to compliment it, but I said to the, the cashier something about it. it. It was an invitation for her to engage me, but she kindly cut me off, never breaking the smile on her face and uh, insisted that I, uh, she didn't know what I was talking about because, in fact, that was the real bell and the real beast. And I, I, I chuckled, I pressed in and again, and I gave her the old dad wink to let her know that I was a safe person to be real with. I know Disney requires this from their employees, but she could feel free to treat me as a kind of epistemic oasis in the midst of all of this trickery. I was a knowing adult who would give her space to connect with me on a human level. No need for the charade, no need to keep up the game. I reasoned that I had seen all the YouTube videos about behind the scenes at Disneyland and that I knew how the sausage was made and she could still, uh, she, could, she could be real with me, but she wouldn't break character. Her commitment to the magical world of Disney was maddening. Um, I get why people do this. The show must go on. Holding character with rigor, I think, is even a special kind of personal pride. In wrestling, they have a word for this. It's called kayfabe. Uh, kayfabe is the subtle contractual agreement um, that exists between professional wrestlers and should be knowing adults that, in fact, what is happening is fake, but wrestlers will perform the duty and the character and the theater of wrestling. It is, as they say in the TV business, the fourth wall. Uh, this all changed in one moment. Um, among the giants that decorate the WWF Hall of Fame, I told you there are five, a couple things I could lecture about 30 minutes. I apologize for this already. Uh, is, is Hall of Famer Brett the Hitman Hart one of the largest. Uh, Brett started as a part of the tag team, the Hart Foundation, then ended with a solo career. After I lost interest in WWF, two things happened. Number one, Bret Hart's career took off as a, a solo wrestler. Uh, he ended up becoming the champion. The other was that uh, the WWF began to wane in popularity. Ted Turner had purchased WCW World Championship Wrestling. They were developing stars and poaching some of the very best from the WWF, including WWF champion, Brett the Hitman Hart. Uh, this, of course, was a problem for owner Vince McMahon. It's one thing to lose your talented wrestlers, some of your top guys, but you can't lose your champion. The optics of that are bad. So naturally, Brett would have to surrender the belt, the championship belt, and he lost to another wrestler. Um, it turned out there was an event coming up. He had like one month left in his contract uh, called SummerSlam. It was one of like four at the time national events. It was pay-per-view back when that was the thing. Had a national audience. You know, they fill a stadium with I don't know many thousands of people. So uh, they map out the story of Survivor Series and it turns out that Bret the Hitman Hart will in fact wrestle a guy named Shawn Michaels. Uh, this logic seemed to suggest presented a perfect time in the story of wrestling for Bret Hart to lose his belt, to surrender his title, to Shawn Michaels on the way out the door, except for there were two factors. One, uh, Bret Hart hated Shawn Michaels, and not just as a foil in the drama of wrestling, like off, off the uh, stage, he thought that Michaels represented an arrogant brand of wrestling that took the sport less seriously and the, and the drama more seriously. And it was in Montreal. And the reason this is a big deal is because part of Bret Hart's persona was that he in fact took pride in as a Canadian wrestler, which in fact was biographically true of his story. He came from a school that trained wrestlers in Canada. So Hart pleaded with Vince McMahon to let him be disqualified in this match 
and then he'd lose the belt a week later away from Canada into somebody besides Shawn Michaels. So the three of them, Michaels, Hart, and McMahon sat down as professionals. They mapped out the match as they do in this business, and they decided that yes, Brett would lose by a disqualification. This would give, uh, let Michaels win the match, but because it was disqualification, Hart would retain the title, and he could lose it properly again a week later. But that's not what happened. About 15 minutes into this last match at this spectacular event, Michaels put Bret Hart into the sharpshooter, which is Bret Hart's finishing move. So there's a bit of kind of a slap in the face with the irony there. It's a kind of submission hold. Bret Hart never submits, but the next thing he heard was a ref call the match and the bell ring. Stunned, Bret Hart got up, looked around to what makes sense of what had happened, and this became the moment in WWF that is probably the most famous today. It has a name. It's called the Montreal Screwjob. It has an entire documentary that has been made about it. There's an episode of Radio Lab that is, um, I heard you, Kareem, that is dedicated to, uh, to this. Because what happened next was this. Bret Hart didn't go out quietly. After he figured out what happened wasn't a mistake, he walked over to the edge of the ring and the ropes. He got close to Vince McMahon, and he spit on him. Then he jumped out of the ring. He began destroying tables. He began destroying media equipment, which felt confusing for fans, but it felt like, well, this could just be really good drama. But then he did the unthinkable. With a finger pointed at the camera in front of 70,000 fans for the world to see, Bret Hart broke kayfabe for the first time in the history of wrestling. He used his pointer finger to spell out WCW. For the first time in history, Somebody was honest about this relationship. He dissolved the fourth wall. Bret Hart pulled the curtain back and acknowledged the wizard. What happened next, nobody could have anticipated. The very next night on a show called, I don't know, Monday Night Raw or something, Vince McMahon, the president, also broke kayfabe. He gave a live interview in front of thousands of people explaining what had happened, what was supposed to happen, and uh, ultimately introducing a new era into WWF wrestling because the rest was history. This decision changed the way the WWF relationship had with its crowds. Now, everybody was in on the joke, but instead of the WWF falling apart, something surprising happened. This new, authentic, perhaps ironic form of sports theater introduced the beginning of the most successful growth of WWF's history. It seems that what wrestling fans really wanted was not for the organization to keep up the charade at all expense. What they wanted was a real invitation to be a part of all of it, to peer into the nitty-gritty. Vince McMahon himself became a character, the jerk boss that nobody wanted to work for. Wrestlers began spilling in real-life details into their fake storylines. The whole thing became a soap opera where it more or less disclosed uh, the popular nature of the organization that it was, it was becoming. Sometimes entertainers uh, use dissolving the fourth wall as a, a strategy in, in telling stories. Uh, one thinks of Saved by the Bell, Zach Morris, who would look directly at the camera as an opportunity to narrate storylines. Or if you've seen the show Community, you might think of Abed, who with Don Quixote-like irony addresses plot details and theme conflicts as hypotheticals on a TV show about six characters going to community college on a TV show with six characters who in fact are going to community college. But that's different than when somebody actually breaks the fourth wall. What happens and that instance is a power to mystify like it did in Montreal and wrestling in 1997. Uh, there's another word to describe what's happening in these moments. It's authenticity. Not a bad time to remind you here at the beginning of the season of Epiphany, 
We're using this time to, to revisit some of the values that the staff has identified as most important to UBC. So last week, we talked about community. Today, I want to talk about authenticity. Um, we all like authenticity, and yet I would argue we're not always authentic. Uh, perhaps inauthenticity takes its most miserable expression in religion, and this is the problem that Jesus is addressing in Matthew 6. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the mediums Jesus is using to address uh, this kind of religious inauthenticity, I'll get there, inauthenticity, are giving, praying, and fasting. I've elected only to include the, the praying section in our reading today. Um, very often, Jesus' insult for the Pharisees gets translated as hypocrite. Um, it's worth slowing down and looking at the etymological roots of this for a second. Uh, hypocritic, uh, translated, it, it means um, to interpret below or beneath. Um, if that's obscure, then consider this. The prefix we all are familiar with, uh, hypo, hypoglycemic, hypothermia. Uh, that means below or under. Critic, we also know this is like judgment or make a judgment. This might help, though. What was obvious to Greek listeners in the first century was that the word hypocritic uh, or hypocrite uh, was suggesting this. The hypo or below was referring to the face of an actor beneath a mask. So the critic was the interpretive move that this actor would then do with the, the decision of the character. Perhaps Eugene B Peterson offers something that's more helpful then when in his translation of this, he calls the Pharisees play actors. Uh, hypocrite was certainly not intended to be a, a, a compliment that Jesus called the, the Pharisees. It, he, it's, it's an insult, but I think meaning has evolved in a way that I'm not sure it has the same scathing insult we hear. Uh, David Garland, Truett's very own, I don't know if he is retired yet, he's on his way if he's not, uh, has written a really helpful commentary on Matthew. And I actually just want to read him here at length because I think this is helpful in the way we think about this. He says there's two type of hypocrites. First, a hypocrite may be a play actor who consciously feigns piety to cloak an inner goodness. In this case, the hypocrite is more aware of the hypocrisy than anyone else. Or B, the hypocrite may be self-deceived and the discrepancy is not between what others think about that person and their inner reality, but what the hypocrite thinks of himself or herself and what God thinks. It seems to me that self-deception either way is, is the linchpin. Do we know when we're not being authentic? I have to confess, and um, I, I know that some of you treat the Enneagram on par with like astrology, but uh, whatever you might think of this suggestive typology, I am typed as a, a three. And what that means, among other things, is I struggle not just with the sin of deceit, but run the risk of ultimately deceiving myself. Uh, in this regard, I think social media has something to offer me. Uh, it gives me the advantage of occasionally seeing myself, right, in a third-person perspective. And, and what have I noticed? I noticed that for some reason, when I'm talking on a camera, I'll do things like scratch the back of my hair. I'll uh, look away off camera for some reason, and I'll like throw in an occasional Magnum or Blue Steel pose in there, right? Uh, truth be told, I also have a preaching persona. I'll never forget not long after we had hired one of our former children's pastors, Emily, we were having a conversation and she stopped me in the middle of the conversation. He said, um, your, your diction and your, your conversational speech patterns are so much different now than when you preach. Um, but now I'll tell you an uncomfortable truth. You do this too. I've watched your Insta videos and your Facebook stories. We all have a stage presence. Perhaps that's inevitable. But again, I ask, why do we do that? Why do we have this instinct to front a different version of ourselves? One way to answer this question is to explore what it might look like if we swung hard in the opposite direction. What if we lived in a world that was completely devoid of pretense? 
We've all posted ugly pictures of ourselves on Instagram. We actively shared the most embarrassing version of ourselves. As often as the case turns out to be, I think there's something about conventional wisdom. Um, we all operate in the human art of framing, and I think for good reason. In 2009, an all-star cast, along with Ricky Gervais, made this movie called The Invention of Lying. Uh, the movie is about a world without lying. Um, no one knows how to do it or even what a lie is. And in that world, people are, are brutally honest. And I'd like for you to watch a clip of that honesty with me. Very embarrassed I work here. Hi. Hi. Hello. And you're very pretty. That only makes this worse. <clears throat> your sister? No. Daughter? No. She's way out of your league. Uh, thank you. Sorry, it's my mom. I, I think she's uh, probably checking on the date. It won't take long. Hello? Yes, I'm with him right now. No, not very attractive. No, doesn't make much money. It's all right, though. Seems nice. Kind of funny. A bit fat. Has a funny little snub nose. Mm. Kind of like a frog in a facial. Yeah, but... No, I won't be sleeping with him tonight. Nope. Probably not even a kiss. Okay, you too. Bye. Sorry about that. It's all right. Don't think twice. How is your mum, all right? She's all right. Great. That's... Morning, Shelley. Hi, Mark. I realize more and more... Oh, I guess I cut that the wrong way. Oh, the media team says no. Hold on. Today's the day. Morning, Shelley. Hi, Mark. I realize more and more every day how overqualified I am for this position and how incompetent you are at yours. Any messages? Anthony is coming up within the hour to see if he can get up the courage to fire you. If he can't, he said that he'll definitely do it tomorrow. Anything else? Any messages not to do with being fired? Well, I told everyone you're getting fired this week and they shouldn't expect their calls returned, so no one left any messages. Okay. Next time? I don't think there'll be a next time. Take the message, just in case I don't get fired. You're almost definitely. What do you think? Is that being authentic? Breaking the fourth wall of social convention with brutal honesty? Uh, I will now reveal to you what I think about all of this. As I indicated before, um, I think we have a pretty concrete notion of what we think hypocrite is. Unfortunately, two figures that are often tagged with the label hypocrite are pastors and politicians, and not without warrant either. Uh, wisdom sometimes coaches me to keep politics out of the pulpit, and insofar as I can do so, I feel like without dispensing of the integrity of the gospel. I try and do that because I don't want to lose people for no reason at all. Uh, but sometimes politicians uh, make choices that are so unbelievably maddening that it can't be ignored. I have an example to cite not to stir controversy, but to make my point. Uh, the politician that I have the absolute hardest time with, and, and I mean on a level of disdain that is only joined by like Dolores Umbridge and Thomas the Footman from Downton Abbey, is Lindsey Graham. Uh, in 2015, after Justice Scalia had died, God rest his soul, President Obama had almost a year left in his term and nominated Merrick Garland. You remember the story. Uh, the Republican Senate blocked that judicial nominee and the hearings and ultimately stymied that nomination, reasoning that given the proximity to a potential new president, it would be prudent to hold out judicial nominees until the next president was elected. I have to confess, I don't know enough about politics or precedent to know if this 
decision was any we're, uh, any way normal, but I thought, well, at least now that it's been stated, it can be a kind of precedent that everybody can abide by. In the midst of this process in 2015, Lindsey Graham said, and I quote, I want you to use my words against me. If there is a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of his first term, you can say Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. Well, golly gee. Wouldn't you know it, Justice Ginsburg uh, passed away, God rest her soul, died within a few months of the conclusion of President Trump's term. It was almost like Lindsey Graham was a prognosticator. And do you know what Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Judicial Committee, did? He pushed the nomination through. Now, let me address the unspoken whataboutisms. Uh, I concede you're right. Democrats are slimy, and, and if the point was to be an equal opportunity offender, I would have taken time to tell you about Bill Clinton and the Me Too movement. Let's push that aside. That's not my point. My point is that while at first glance, Senator Graham seems to present himself as quintessentially hypocritical, I want to argue that, in fact, he is not. Lindsey Graham wasn't play-acting. In both instances, he did exactly what he intended to do, which was to placate his voting base, which is the problem with our two-party system. Lindsey Graham isn't rewarding for having conviction. He's rewarding for complying. I think that authenticity isn't necessarily about telling the truth all the time or posting unedited images of ourselves. I think authenticity is about living in congruence with your nature. And that takes courage. It takes courage both to ask yourself, who am I really? And it takes courage to also keep honoring that version of yourself. Uh, years ago, I applied for a job and I got pretty far into the process and as most people are, I was excited about vocational opportunity and pretty far down the path of imagining what my life would be like in this story. And I had a cheering section, a, a listening group, a discernment team. I told them about my job opportunity. They listened patiently, asked questions, prayed for me. About a month later, we reconvened and I shared with a bit of shame that I, in fact, didn't get hired. And one of my friends uh, listened carefully and she said something that helped heal my soul. She said, I have to tell you, after listening to you last month and researching the company, that night I just prayed one thing, dear God, I hope they don't hire them. And I gave her a hurt look and then she said to me, that's just not who you are. Ash Wednesday is within striking distance and at that service, Jamie will likely read that lengthy passage from Barbara Brown Taylor about Jesus and the reading among other things uh, is about how Jesus serves as a mirror for us during that season. That is, Jesus reflects back to us who we are. By way of this motif, Taylor shares an anecdote about a lady who poses this question. Who is it that told me the truth about myself so clearly that I wanted to kill him for it? To take that play-acting mask off can be terrifying. But I should also tell you that the truth will set you free. When I was reading Dr. Garland's commentary earlier this week, I noted that he offered this definition. He said, hypocrisy is the discrepancy between our outer appearances and our inner reality. Those words, outer and inner, took me to another definition. That is the Book of Common Prayer's definition of sacrament, an outward symbol of an inward reality. This is what the sacraments do to us. These are God's sanctifying works in us to make us whole and holy people, which is to say the gospel intends to bring our inner outer worlds into alignment. And that is the task of discipleship. How? How, though? How do we do this? I'm afraid to tell you that the antidote for hypocrisy 
doesn't turn out to be brutal honesty. I think the antidote to hypocrisy turns out to be vulnerability. And if we look at the pattern in our Bibles, this shouldn't surprise us. Weakness turned to strength. The cross bears shame. Divinity becomes humanity, sharing and inviting others into our brokenness. Paul, St. Paul in Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. UBC, may we learn to set down our masks, to post those imperfect pictures, and to be honest with ourselves. May we be leaders in sharing and inviting others into our own stories of vulnerability and May we discover that in response, God is making us into whole and holy people who are aligned in our inner and outer lives. Uh, we are going to pray, but as you know, in the month of January, um, I got a, an email from Mayor Meek asking us to pray specifically for the city. So this week, I want to pray for the Waco ISD, um, the board and, and our superintendent, that's Dr. Ken Cannon, Keith Gilroy, Stephanie Quarterwood, Carrie Dupuy, Angela Tickel, Jose Benigna, Jeremy Davis, and Emily Azetti. Uh, I, I guess I should say this. Um, I am aware that um, in elections in the last couple of years, there have been some very heated elections and opinions about the performance of the Wake ISD. Uh, I, I don't have strong opinions about that. What I do want to say is one thing we abide by is that we pray for people regardless how we feel about them, and we bless people. Um, the other thing I want to say is I'm, I'm just citing the Waco ISD leaders here, but uh, certainly I'm aware of the private institutions like Vanguard and, um, and Riker, and I'm, I'm mindful of Rappaport, and I'm mindful of, of Woodway ISD and China Spring and Robinson and all these surrounding areas that have leadership that has suffered tremendous strain this last year, these last two years. And so though I just named these, let's enter hearts and minds extend that banner of generosity in our prayer to all of our educators and administrators in this area. And let's collectively bless them with a moment of prayer. And I'll do what I did last week. We've named them. I'll say a prayer for them. And then I'll turn to pray to close out the sermon. And then we'll take our moment of silence together. Uh, God, we're thankful for the city of Waco. And we are, are so grateful for our educators. Um, people who, to be candid, are probably underpaid. Some people who volunteer um, but we do believe deeply that the future belongs to our children and, and we're grateful for people who have given their lives, their vocational selves to blessing and to investing in children. And so we plead today that um, your spirit would be um, extra palpable in their lives, that they would be encouraged, that they would be renewed, that they would know they are cared about, that they um, would know that they, they are loved. So we ask for supernatural energy for our teachers as, as they move into the second semester of the school year. God, we also, in the spirit of what we've thought about today, ask you in your spirit to map us on the trajectory of wholeness, of aligning our lives in our inner and outer worlds, that beneath the mask, we would be people who um, have a consistent inner and outer life. So Holy Spirit, give us the courage to set down the masks and discover that freedom we have in Christ beneath that. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. At the conclusion of the preaching portion of worship, we like to take time and sit in silence together. What we're doing is listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly. Perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. So let's listen together. <laughs>